Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood Black feminists, exploring the legacies and future of Black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Elam. On this podcast, we will discuss Black theater history, we'll have interviews with Black theater artists and practitioners, and we'll discuss plays by Black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. You don't want to miss this. Stay Today is our first Black Theater History episode. We are so excited to dive into the history of anti-lynching dramas, a genre of theater created by Black women playwrights. The form is dedicated to social justice and community practice and sets a precedent for the power of theater to transform and inspire. Let's set the stage here. It's the turn of the century, we are post-emancipation, and though the formalized institution of slavery is abolished, black people in the United States are still facing the threat of white violence. Lynching victims were often accused of murder or sexual assault, which is really just a smokescreen for black people who allegedly broke Jim Crow laws or attempted to compete economically with white residents. According to the Equal Justice Initiative, 4,084 black people were lynched during 1877 to 1950 in the South. As the high numbers of victims demonstrate, lynching was a fact of black life in the South, and black communities were hyper aware of their proximity to white supremacist violence. Simultaneously, black folks were organizing in an attempt to persuade the government to intervene in this epidemic of lynching. A prominent figure of anti-lynching organizing was activist and investigative journalist Ida B. Wells, who would publish her groundbreaking research in 1892 in a pamphlet called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, which challenged the alleged reason that black men were getting lynched because of the rape of white women. Instead, Wells cited black economic progress as the real reason for lynching. Three years later, she followed up Southern Horrors with a 100-page pamphlet describing the high rates of lynching in the United States. In the tradition of earlier playwrights such as William Wells Brown, who utilized his play The Escape or A Leap for Freedom for abolitionist ends, anti-lynching dramas intended to enact social change and improve the material conditions for black folk everywhere. In the 1910s and 1920s, a number of African-American women poets and authors turned to drama to address racial violence. Writers such as Angelina Weld Grimke, Alice Dunbar Nelson, Mary Burrell, Georgia Douglas Johnson, and Myrtle Smith Livingston were among the writers to do so. With the majority of these Black women living and working in the heart of Washington, D.C., they were constantly confronted with symbols of democracy that they found their lived realities falling outside of. These women contributed to the genre now known as lynching dramas. 
While the name lynching dramas might suggest the presence of black violence, these dramatic depictions did not attempt to recreate the lynching. Instead, they focused on the threat or occurrence of a lynching, as theater historians Kathy Perkins and Judith Stevens note. In fact, the lynching dramatists refused to recreate lynchings on stage, choosing to depict the black home and the resulting damage that lynchings had on black domesticity and black social life. This function to illustrate the ways that lynching seeped into other spaces that were believed to be safe from anti-black violence, such as homes, schools, and churches. Scholar Caritha Mitchell expands on this point by emphasizing that these dramas redirected the conversation away from an individual or a body and emphasized the impact on the family and community. Lynching dramas also serve to affirm Black life. This is reflected in the places they performed, such as the community spaces like churches and homes. These dramas, with the exception of a few, often did not receive full productions on stage, but were read in community with other Black folks, in a practice that Caritha Mitchell calls embodied practice of Black belonging. Equally as important to the content of the dramas was the fact that this was a genre created by Black women. Judith Stevens and Caritha Mitchell, among other scholars, situate lynching dramas within a Black feminist and womanist theatrical tradition. Black feminist scholar Lisa Anderson offers the idea of a Black feminist theater aesthetic that is characterized as centering the politics of Black feminism, focuses on the lives of Black women, and is critical of violence against women, including by Black men, among other things. As scholars of Black feminist theory, we are particularly concerned with what lynching dramas offer to Black feminist and womanist theatrical praxis and how these particular playwrights utilize theater to advocate for Black feminist politics. The dramatists who lived between 1890 and 1930 were flooded with depictions of anti-Black violence in their quotidian lives, and the historical record really focuses on these realities. However, as Caritha Mitchell states, these dramatists were invested in providing their communities with strategies for living with lynching. We turn now to three pioneers of this important genre of theater and the impact their plays continue to have today. The first anti-lynching dramatist was Angelina Weld Grimke, who was named after her abolitionist aunt. She was born to Archibald Grimke, the president of the NAACP Washington unit, and Sarah Stanley Grimke, the daughter of a pastor. Grimke attended several prestigious schools and graduated in 1902 from Boston Normal School of Gymnastics and began teaching English in Washington, D.C. More known for her poetry and short stories, Grimke penned the play Rachel, which was originally titled Blessed Be the Baron in 1914. In 1916, the NAACP's drama committee sponsored a production of Rachel. Growing up in a middle-class neighborhood, Grimke was often shielded from poor conditions, but not racial injustices, which had a direct influence on her choice to write Rachel. While Rachel was written before Du Bois and the NAACP's Dramas Committee's call for race propaganda to counteract the popularity of the film Birth of a Nation, 
Rachel was chosen and given a semi-professional production in Washington, D.C. at the Normal School for Colored Girls in 1960, thus making it the first Black-authored non-musical drama to be performed by Black actors for a broad audience. Grimke's Rachel is considered the first play that pioneered the anti-lynching genre. Rachel follows a young girl's life through adulthood and how the inability to protect her future children from racism leads to her decision to not have children. As Josephine Lee argues, Rachel shows how the home is violated by the evils of racism. The home offers no protection against lynching and economic disenfranchisement. Rachel was produced to mixed reactions even within the NAACP who has sponsored the play. Some held the production for reaching an integrated audience by emotionally appealing to the similarities of whites and blacks. Others responded negatively to Grimke's choices to highlight European cultural elements, arguing that Grimke had written the play not for black people, but for whites. They also highlighted that Rachel was committing race suicide. Grimke responded to these critics in the Competitor magazine in 1920 in an essay titled Reason. She proclaims, The appeal is not primarily to the colored people, but the whites. My belief was, then, that if a vulnerable point in there could be found, if their hearts could be reached, I believe it to be motherhood. If then, the white women of this country could see, feel, understand. Many scholars alike have doubled down on considering Rachel a play for a white audience, but Jordan and I believe this is an overdetermination. Grimke's drama, while it does appeal to white audiences, also speaks interracially. Rachel deals candidly with issues of colorism, specifically in the scene among the Lane family and Rachel Loving. It also speaks to the black community's gender issues demonstrated in the relationship between Rachel and Strong. Finally, it reconfigures notions of motherhood. As Rachel, though painfully, makes a decision about her own reproductive future, not in denying motherhood, but in electing instead to be a mother in other ways. We turn now to Alice Dunbar-Nelson. Dunbar-Nelson was extremely politically active. She organized for the women's suffrage movement in the mid-Atlantic states and acted as field representative for the Women's Committee of the Council of Defense in 1918. She also campaigned for the passage of the dire anti-lynching bill of 1924. She was married to poet-playwright Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and together they lived in LaDroit Park, which was a neighborhood of D.C.'s burgeoning Black middle class and the hub for the Black intelligentsia of the early 20th century. Dunbar Nelson's play Mine Eyes Have Seen, a one-act anti-lynching drama, was published in The Crisis, which was the official publication of the NAACP in 1918. Mine Eyes Have Seen deals frankly with issues of citizenship and nationhood, questioning how black folks can serve and protect a country that does not do the same. The play follows a black family who had to flee their home in the South after the patriarch was lynched. 
According to Caritha Mitchell, Black's success in Dunbar Nelson's drama was the reason for the lynching of the father who owned a business in town and faced threats from the white residents to shut down. Dunbar Nelson, with my eyes have seen, establishes alternative reasons for Black death that challenges the dominant belief that Black people were getting lynched due to their connection to sexual and violent crimes. It works to corroborate Ida B. Wells's pamphlets on lynching, functioning as a productive counter-narrative to racist propaganda. Our final playwright is Georgia Douglas Johnson, who was the most prolific lynching dramatist of her time. Johnson wrote approximately 28 dramas addressing both racial and non-racial themes on top of the many poems and short stories that she wrote in her lifetime. One of her most known lynching dramas was A Sunday Morning in the South, a one-act play that illustrates a family having breakfast before a lynch mob comes to take away a teenage boy from his home. As early as 1925, she wrote to Howard University's Elaine Locke requesting his opinion of her recently completed play, Blue Blood, which she felt confident enough to describe as a mighty good play. In 1926, she submitted Blue Blood to the Urban League's Opportunity Playwriting Contest and won honorable mention. In 1927, her play Plumes was awarded the competition's first prize. Between 1930 and 1935, Johnson submitted several plays to the newly organized Federal Theater Project, and in 1938, she contributed her playwriting skills to the NAACP's anti-lynching campaigns. By 1943, she had submitted her entire book of plays to the Wendell Mallet Publishing Company in New York. In addition to her artistic endeavors, Georgia Douglas Johnson believed that artistic community was important. She opened up her home in Washington, D.C. on Saturday nights, or what is now known as the Edge Street Salon. The salon was a place where local artists and activists could talk about local and national issues, get feedback on the artistic work, and organize against politics. Frequent visitors to the Estreet Salon were W.E.B. Du Bois, Angelina Weld Grimke, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Mary Burrell, Elaine Locke, to name a few. She was an exemplar in utilizing art as protests, and due to the community of the S Street Salon, set the stage for the emergence of the Harlem Renaissance. These Black women dramatists were invested in recording, creating, and preserving alternative evidence about the anti-Black violence that shaped their lives without focusing on reproducing images of Black death. Black theater comes from a legacy of playwrights and artists using the stage to intervene in their social and political lives. For many, the stage was one of the places that they could talk about issues that were affecting them. So, next time you think about the legacy of Black women in theater, look a bit further than Susan Laurie Parks, Lynn Nottage, or even Lorraine Hansberry. You might find those who fertilized the ground on which they stood. As Black theater instructors, scholars, artists, 
We are without a doubt indebted to their incredible work and will continue to use our own scholarship and practice to pay it forward. That concludes our episode. To learn more about lynching dramas, we suggest the following books and articles which were instrumental in our research for this episode. Living with Lynching, African American Lynching Plays, Performance and Citizenship, 1890-1930 by Caritha Mitchell. The article, Anti-Lynch Plays by African American Women, Race, Gender, and Social Protests in American Drama, by Judith L. Stevens. The book, Colored No More, Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, D.C., by Treva Lindsay. And finally, the book, Black Feminism in Contemporary Drama, by Lisa Anderson. This has been another episode of Daughters of Lorraine with Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. Next time, we'll be covering August Wilson's Jitney. You definitely won't want to miss this.